0: Warning, the following audio presentation contains contains scenes of extreme cringiness, awkward conversation and audio quality.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's quite necessarily going to be that bad. Hello everybody and welcome to Time Shopping Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Patti. And this week for our rambling, we have something a little bit different, but kind of the same if you listen to Monday's episode. And i was really realized I've stolen an opening line from someone's YouTube video. Whatever. Mm-hmm. It's Pyramids of Mars again.
0: Yes. Yes, it is.
1: But a little bit different. So when we did our episode on, was it Zygons? Yes. We mentioned that Pyramids was coming up. Mm-hmm. And how when we were preparing for this podcast, one of the trial stories that we did, or the trial story that we did, was Pyramids of Mars where we were checking out the format, seeing if we liked it or whatever, and sending it around to a few people to get some feedback. And we kind of put out the request of, hey, do you want to hear what the original recording was when me and Patty had no clue what we were doing? And Uh Patty, what answer did we get?
0: Uh, It was a resounding yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the recording (laughs) you're about to listen to is the original edit of our Test Pyramids of Mars podcast, which we made in, oh my god, so the file was generated, the original file was generated on the 22nd of April 2020. Hmm. So this is over two years ago at this point. And so we haven't changed anything. This is the original edit that we Mm -hmm. had for that.
0: But what I will say is, as awkward as it can come across, or as, you However much we've developed as the years have gone on, I still think it's better than our trial run of a YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: will never see the light of day, because that footage was deleted.
0: Yeah, it pretty much was.
1: Yeah. For for information on us trying to do it on YouTube, did we talk about that with Dan and Paul? Uh, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, go listen to our episode with Half Measures over on, over on their podcast. Yeah. Anyway. <sighs> enjoy the rambling i don't know why i'm so embarrassed about this like we do this every week and it wasn't that bad but enjoy it's
0: it's like watching it's like uh, going back and listening to your best bits from another show (laughs) Hi guys, welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy.
1: And I'm Trisha. In this episode, we'll take a look at the Pyramids of Mars. To start us off this week, I'll hand over to Paddy for the story recap.
0: Let me take you by the hand and guide you down to one of my favourite stories and I think one of Trisha's favourite stories as well. Episode 1. We cut to Egypt circa 1911, where Professor Marcus Scarman and his excavation crew have just unearthed a tomb dating back to the earliest days of the pharaohs. The tomb houses an artefact called the Eye of Horus, which seems to spook the locals who flee. Scarman brushes off their concerns as mere superstition. As he tries to prise the eye out of its socket, the wall slides open in a slightly mechanical electronic fashion, leading to an antechamber. Scarman enters and is immediately struck down by a flash of green light. Cut back to the TARDIS, circling the void. The Doctor looks uncharacteristically morose as Sarah Jane comes out of the TARDIS wardrobe, wearing an outfit once belonged to Victoria who travelled with the Doctor during his second incarnation. It appears that he is homesick, or at least sick of the current status quo of working for a unit. Suddenly, the TARDIS is struck, and Cersei is an apparition of a beast head, not unlike the kind seen on Egyptian gods. The Doctor is initially sceptical, but theorises that something with significant mental strength could project into the TARDIS mid-flight. The Doctor suddenly announces that they have landed, and upon exiting the TARDIS, find themselves in a storage room filled with Egyptian artefacts. The Doctor states it is actually unit headquarters, but at the wrong point in time suddenly sinister organ music plays and we cut to a well-dressed egyptian man playing the organ he is interrupted much to his frustration by a friend of the professor's who goes by the name of dr warlock who demands to know what is going on and why has he barred both himself and the professor's brother lawrence from the house the tardis crew are discovered by the housekeeper who assumes that they are with warlock and warns them about the egyptian he indicates that there is something sinister happening in the house They leave, and as the housekeeper watches them walk out the door, a sarcophagus in the room slowly opens. As Warlock and the Egyptian, who is named Ibrahim Amin, argue, a scream is heard and they discover the housekeeper dead. The Egyptian pulls a gun after declaring his faith to the old gods, but he is stopped by the doctor, who flees with the wounded Warlock and Sarah. He then opens the sarcophagus to reveal a well-maintained mummy, which he activates with a ring device. The doctor sends Sarah on ahead to a scout. She sees a mummy, and a double game of cat and mouse begins as she tries to avoid it, and the doctor and warlock avoids Ibrahim. Suddenly, the Egyptian and the mummy are summoned back by more sinister organ music. Sarah arrives with help in the aid of Lawrence Scarman, the professor's brother, and they make their way back to his cottage. Back in the house, the Egyptian begins to pray to a glowing sarcophagus. Lawrence Scarman wants to call the police, but the doctor halts him, informing us that something is interfering in the time stream. The Doctor notices a rudimentary Marconi device created by Lawrence. He then notices that it is receiving a message from Mars, which reads, Beware, Sutek. The Doctor announces that Sutek is the basis for the Egyptian god Set, and informs the others that Sutek is one of the greatest dangers to the galaxy. Back in the house, it appears the music is actually a tonal lock that opens a gateway to another dimension. The Doctor and co arrive at the house in time to see a figure appear from the gateway. Declaring itself to be the one true servant of Sutek, it kills the Egyptian. End of part one. Reprise for episode two. The figure reveals itself to actually be Professor Marcus Scarman. It orders the assembled mummies to begin building a relay using ancient canopic jars. Meanwhile, the doctor informs his companions that Sutik is actually a member of an ancient alien race known as the Osirons. He was imprisoned by the other Osirons after he destroyed their home planet and went on a wave of destruction across the galaxy. The doctor announces that the sarcophagus is actually a time-space tunnel, which immediately tries to put him into it. He narrowly manages to escape, though. Cut to the outside, where Poacher discovers one of the mummies. He attempts to flee, but is stopped by an invisible barrier. Cut to the cottage, where Professor Scarman encounters the wounded Warlock. He demands to know where is the other Scarman. Dr. Warlock, confused by his friend's behaviour, informs him that he is with the doctor. Scarman, upon hearing this, orders a mummy to kill Warlock. Back to the Doctor and Sarah and their new companion Lawrence, the Doctor comes too and thinks that he can stop Sutek, but only if he knows exactly where he is. He asks Lawrence where the Professor was digging. He says that if he knows exactly where Sutek is, he could emit a jamming signal that would break Sutek's mental hold over the area. But firstly, he will need to get the ring device that Ibrahim uh, had. Scarman and the Mummies return to the house, followed by the Poacher, and he orders them to search the house for the Doctor and his companions. The poacher uses an opportunity to eliminate Skarman, but the bullets from his rifle seem to have no effect, and Skarman sends more mummies to hunt him down. Meanwhile, the Doctor and his companions find the Egyptian's body and more alien equipment. The Doctor realises with horror that these are components to build an Osiric ballistic missile, and that Sutik aims to escape from his temporal stasis prison by destroying the source of the signal. They escape to the TARDIS, just as Skarman and the mummies, who are now revealed to be robots, enter searching for them. Sarah urges the Doctor to return to the future, but the Doctor says that they can't, because of the wibbly-wobbly nature of time. He brings them forward to show exactly what awaits them in a world where they don't stop to stop Sutek. Back in the house, Sutek demands that the rocket be built without delay, and all others that are interfering with this process must be destroyed. Back in Scarman's cottage, the TARDIS crew discover the body of Warlock, and the Doctor urges Lawrence to stop thinking of the Professor as his brother, as he is no longer human and now just a conduit for Sutek's power. Sarah asks why the Osirans didn't kill Sutek, and he advises them that their laws forbade it. He further reveals that the rocket is aimed at the signal station coming from Mars, which is the source of the power for Sutek's prison. Lawrence overhears the doctor state that destroying Sutek's signal will cause the robots and Marcus Scarman to cease functioning, but before he can respond, they hear the death scream outs of the poacher. Lawrence goes outside to try and stop Sarah from activating the jamming signal, but it's too late as the mummies enter the lodge. They overpower the Doctor and Lawrence, and it appears that all hope is lost for Sarah. End of episode 2. Reprise for episode 3. The jamming signal explodes, providing Sarah with a chance to escape. The Doctor informs her to use the ring device to command the mummies to leave. The Doctor then reprimands Lawrence for his interference, and once again highlights the the importance of stopping Sutek and forgetting any attempt to save his brother, as Marcus is now just an animated human cadaver. Back at the house, we get our first proper look at Sutek, who urgently commands the professor to construct the missile without delay, as it appears there is actually a limited window in time of which he can be freed from his prison. He is frozen in place upon the dais in the antechamber that Marcus first encountered him. The doctor notices a diode on the back of one of the damaged mummies, and states they are actually drawing their power from a citronic particle accelerator, most likely in Sutek's tomb. He states that he could attempt to use the time-space tunnel to go back to the tomb and destroy it, and deprive Sutek of his servants. Lawrence, however, asks would it not be easier to destroy the missile itself with some gelignite charges that he knows that the poacher used to keep in his hut. The doctor orders Lawrence to remain and disassemble the mummy while he and Sarah go to the poacher's hut. They encounter the deflection barrier along the way. They locate the canopic jar which acts as a relay for that section of the barrier. They manage to deactivate it after a few tense moments in which the doctor likens it to repairing a watch with a hammer and chisel. He takes the trigger mechanism with him but it has not escaped the notice of Sutek, who deduces that the Doctor is actually an extraterrestrial with knowledge comparable his, to his own. Sutek vows to destroy his enemies as well as everything else in his path, declaring himself to be an enemy of all life. Approaching the hut, we get a more explanation in relation to Sutek. The Doctor informs him that no power in the galaxy can compete him, and it took over 700 sirens led by Horus to merely imprison Sutek. They retrieve the Knight, but they have no fuses or detonators for it, and so they make their way back to the cottage. Marcus Scarman enters the cottage and encounters his brother, who still attempts to rescue him, but it is to no avail and Marcus begins to torture his brother for more information. The Doctor and Sarah return to find him dead. The Doctor disguises himself in the bindings of the disassembled mummy and himself and Sarah make their way to the missile launch pad. Back in the house, Sutek sends the guidance component for the missile through the time-space tunnel to Marcus for him to install. The Doctor and Sarah arrive at the launch pad and the Doctor goes ahead with the gelignite to position it on the launch pad. Sarah has taken a hunting rifle from the cottage and plans to use it to blast the gelignite from a safe distance. Just as the Doctor is about to leave, Skarman appears and commands him to install the guidance unit. He leaves it and moves away, allowing Sarah to bullseye shot the gelignite. However, the explosion seems to stop and reverse itself. The Doctor says that they have no choice now but to go to Sutek directly. Inside, Sutek reveals that he is actually holding back the explosion with his mental powers, and he can only maintain it for a short time, and urges Skarman to remove the bomb from the launch pad. He leaves, and the Doctor sneaks into the house and enters the time-space tunnel. He distracts Sutek long enough for the bomb to explode, destroying the missile. Sutek, in his anger, lashes out at the Doctor with a bolt of mental energy. End of Episode 3 Reprise of Episode 4 Sutek chooses to spare the Doctor and demands to know who he is. The Doctor refuses to tell him and Sutek begins to torture him until the Doctor reveals that he is actually a Time Lord. The Doctor refuses his offering of alliance and Sutek begins to torture him again until he is stopped when Skarman signals him to reveal that he has captured Sarah. The Doctor begs him to stop from killing Sarah and Sutek realizes that Sarah is a companion of the Doctor's and he therefore mentally locates where the TARDIS is. He takes the TARDIS key from the Doctor and sends it to Skarman, ordering him to go to Mars and destroy the signal. The Doctor informs him that the controls are isomorphic and so Sutek possesses him ordering Scarman to kill Sarah if the Doctor deviates from Sutek's control. He also orders him to kill them once they arrive on Mars. The Doctor, Sarah, Scarman, and a mummy travel to one of the pyramids on Mars, and upon arrival, Scarman orders the mummy to strangle the Doctor. He does so despite Sarah's attempts to stop them, and they go into the pyramid to locate the signal, leaving Sarah to mourn the loss of the Doctor. He asks her to stop soaking his shirt with her tears, and reveals that his respiratory bypass system has allowed him to survive the strangulation. They follow after Scarman through a series of chambers that hold puzzles that they must complete in order to proceed. Scarman has the advantage as Sutik is able to use his mental abilities to guide him safely through the traps. In the penultimate chamber, Sarah is suddenly trapped in a transparent tube and two mummies appear. Horace's voice rings out and says that Sarah can be saved so long as the doctor answers one question correctly. However, it's not that simple. Horace announces that he must choose between two switches, and the mummies will give him the answer. Unfortunately, one of the mummies will tell the truth, and the other will lie, but the doctor does not know which is which. He asks one of the mummies which switch his partner would select, deducing that in both instances the opposite switch selected is the correct one. He saves Sarah, and then proceeds onward to the final chamber. In their chamber, Scarman locates the Eye of Horus, the device that is holding Suitech in stasis, and attempts to destroy it. Horus's guardians appear and attempt to stop him, but it is to no avail, and the eye is destroyed. Skarman drops Lifeless to the floor as Sutek announces his freedom. Sarah moans her failure, but the Doctor says that there is a time factor to consider, and rushes back to the TARDIS. Back on Earth, Sutek is gloating in his victory, and makes his way through to the time-space tunnel, but the Doctor, using a temporal control module from the TARDIS... Shifts the end point of the tunnel to the far future, forcing Sutek to live out the rest of his 7,000 year lifespan, wandering the tunnel, powerless to do anything about it. The doctor indicates that he knew that he had two minutes of time in which to return to Earth, as that is the length of time it takes for our final radio wave to reach from Mars to Earth. Suddenly the sarcophagus that was the entrance of the tunnel bursts into flames due to the doctor not factoring in a thermal imbalance caused by the shifting of the tunnel's end point. Sarah points out that the building in which they are in, which will become unit headquarters, is actually recorded of having burnt to the ground. The doctor says that they should leave as he does not want to be held responsible for another fire, much like the one in 1666. End of episode 4 and end of the story.
1: That is a great recap, buddy. That is awesome. Thank you.
0: Okay, guys, now that that's the episode recapped, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some trivia and some behind-the-scenes information. And for that, I'm going to hand you over to Trisha.
1: Thanks, Betty. So, Pyramids of Mars was written by Stephen Holmes, who isn't actually a person. The original story idea was by Lewis Greifer, but he was not available to work on the project at the time, so the script was done by Robert Holmes, who was the script editor, with input from Philip Hinchcliffe, who was the showrunner at the time. The show was directed by Paddy Russell, she was the first female floor manager to work for the BBC and was one of the first two women directors in BBC history. She's also the first woman director to ever direct Doctor Who and that was with Invasion of the Dinosaurs back in the third Doctor's run. She directed three stories of Doctor Who in total, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, Pyramids of Mars and Horror of Fang Rock.
0: I love Fang Rock, it's so good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is very good. Michael Sheard, who played Lawrence Scarman. Uh, was in six Doctor Who stories in TV and one for Big Finish. He's appeared with the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, seventh, and eighth Doctors. The eighth Doctor being his story with Big Finish. Some of you may recognize him. Michael Sheard was in Empire Strikes Back where he played the short-lived Admiral Ozzle. This four-part story aired from 25th of October to the 15th of November 1975 Though with Sarah's saying that she's from 1980, it is one of the stories that contributes to the unit dating controversy problem that comes up in later episodes, because it establishes that the Brigadier and Benton, who were from Sarah's time, actually left unit before 1979. How can this be possible if is meant to be from 1980? This is something that I'm sure we'll come back to several times over as we review the episodes.
0: Yeah, there's going to be a lot of datal confusion and... I'm pretty sure we're going to need one of those, like, wireframe charts to map everything out.
1: (laughs) The joys of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey nonsense. Pretty much. (laughs) The mask that they chose for the Sue Tech head mask, that being the somewhat jackal-looking one, not the one that he wears in the chair, the reason why they chose that one is because it was the one that made Elizabeth Sladen gasp. Patty Russell had brought her down to the studio and had shown her a variety of masks, And that was the one that elicited a response from Elizabeth Slayton. So that's the one that they went with.
0: It it almost seems to be kind of like a trope in sci-fi that in order to get like an actual good reaction out of the actor, you need to scare the shit out of them with the prop. (laughs) I think
1: it helps. Um, You know, it really helps if it's creepy enough. And there was a big potential for this to get silly. So I think getting her input at the beginning was really important to help prevent that. The house that was used for the Priory was actually owned by Mick Jagger. Though apparently he never lived in it or used it for anything and the place was a bit of a mess when they got there. In the scene where Sutek is finally able to leave his chair, you can see a hand of a set assistant talking back behind the chair. This is one of those things where at the time no one bothered to fix it because this was going out on TV. No one was recording on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray. Those were things no one could imagine happening. But when you look at it now, you know it's coming and it's always good for a giggle. It makes me laugh every time without fail.
0: Literally holding up the backgrounds to stop them from falling over. And you could just see it kind of swaying in the breeze, that type of thing. So I think it's part of the charm of Classic
1: Oh, definitely. Definitely. In the novelisation, there's actually more information given about Sutek and the history of the Osirans. The entire prologue is dedicated to giving a history of the Osirons and how they imprisoned Sutek in the first place. And in the epilogue, we actually see Sarah, once she's returned to Earth, looking into the history of the Priory and trying to figure out what they used as an explanation for it burning down. Inadvertently, they ended up using the Gelignite as an explanation and the death of the poacher. In the audiobook, and presumably in the target novel itself, though I don't have it to hand, Osirons is pronounced differently. This is funny because it's Tom Baker who did the audiobook and he pronounced Osirians Osirians with an extra I before the O at the end. Right. I don't know why they pronounced it differently, but that is the way that they did it.
0: I, I think it's like one of those things like when you're transferring stuff over, like so you do like an audio version of a book or like a TV series or something like that, but years down the line, stuff will always change. And I would... Plus, you could always just put it down to misprints and just Tom being such a dedicated actor that he just reads what's in front of him.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. And maybe Terrence Dix, who did the novelization, just typed it wrong repeatedly.
0: Possibly. Also, there's one uh, trivia note that I think you might have missed out on. And that's actually the guy that plays Marcus Scarman, Bernard Archer. He actually appeared in a second Doctor episode. Uh, it's actually the first one with uh, Peter uh, Patrick Troughton, uh, Power of the Daleks.
1: Oh, very good. I did miss out on that. That is really good to know.
0: So we actually get to see his animated form now with the uh, animated release of Power. (laughs) So... Now we're going to move on from the trivia and background of, quite frankly, one of the best episodes of Tom Baker's, or sorry, one of the best stories of Tom Baker's run. And we're actually going to discuss the Doctor himself, and followed by that we're going to do the companions and then the villains, and just see how well everyone gets represented in the story. So we'll start off with the man himself, and we'll carry on with the Doctor. So Trish, do you want to go first?
1: Yeah, so my feeling on the Doctor on this one is actually a bit interesting. So this was actually one of the first ever classic Who stories I ever saw coming from the Russell T. Davis era and going back. And I remember thinking about how angry he was (laughs) throughout most of the episode. (laughs) But then he gets really smiley and funny in other parts, which I think gives you a really good sense of the Doctor as an alien, which is what Tom always wanted to do tom baker's doctor was alien he doesn't respond to things in a way a human does and that's always been his way right from robot that's always been something that thomas said he wanted to do and what i like about it is that could have been quite off-putting to a new watcher you know you're seeing the doctor being a bit morose at the beginning he gets quite gruff and a bit angry with him but later he gets called on it yeah do you know You have Sarah continuing to be playful throughout the episode with him, meaning that she's quite used to this behaviour, so we kind of accept it as a norm. But then, when he's being a bit dismissive of Lawrence dying, and Sarah calls him on his attitude, he explains why he is that way. You know, she sees things on a very individual level, whereas he is much more big picture. Yeah. It's not a bad thing, it's just what makes him different. He's not human. He says it at the beginning and he says it towards the end. He's not human and his reactions aren't human. Which I think is a really good way of displaying him in this one story.
0: And as like you think at the start, like he sounds a bit pompous with the whole like, you know, I walk in eternity and like Sarah kind of making a mockery of it. But I think it is one of those things that every episode that we've seen or every story that we've seen Tom's doctor in so far, he usually seems to be on top of things. Whereas this one, he just seems to be on the back foot or where he is on the back foot and that scares him. So I think he's actually showing more of his, weirdly enough, I think he's showing more of his humanity by being his mercurial self than he is his alien side of things.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that's actually one of the things that I love about the Doctor in the story. And it's the fact that at one point, he has lost. You'll know, We always see him as the larger than life figure, the one who knows everything and he can outsmart everyone. But when you compare him to Sutek, he is an ant. Yeah. He is nowhere near as powerful. He just had time on his side is the only difference. I can imagine as well, like if you're a child at that time watching that, that must have been quite scary. Like that end of episode three, when he's like in pain and Sutek is mind energying him, whatever way you want to describe it. I can imagine if you were a kid at that time back in the 70s that was really scary to watch and you have to wait a week to find out what happens.
0: And to be fair like the, re- the rest of the episode the rest of the yeah the episodes leading up to it like they are no kind of walk through the park either because they are quite terrifying from even from the start. I think that's what kind of maybe like the setting of the story really lends itself towards is that anything to do with ancient Egypt is always scary and you add a dash of science fiction to that and yeah you're going to have something that is the trope of kids watching Doctor Who on a Saturday behind the
1: couch oh definitely and what I like as well is if we look at this story where it appears in Doc Tom's as you and I refer to him Doc Tom's arc so starting off with Robot this is I think the first episode after Terror of the Zygons I might be wrong um I think it is though um or one of the first episodes after terror of the zygons so he has had an entire season so all of season 12 working in one continuous storyline and then going back to unit and it really shows you how this doctor is different from the third doctor pertwee while he wanted to get his tardis to work because he sort of felt a bit detached without it he quite liked chumming around with the unit guys do you know what i mean that was his crew in a way. While Joe was the companion, all of the unit crew were kind of Team TARDIS in a way for them.
0: Gives the honorary companion side of things to Benton and Yates and the break.
1: Definitely. Whereas this Doctor, he is much more ethereal. He he can't be in this one place the whole time. He can't be at the beck and call of somebody else. And he's a lot less patience for it. Much less than Pertwee did. So I think it's a nice distinction between the two. And also it's a big difference between when we see him go back to the Brigadier in Terror of the Zygons, where he's a little bit, you know, snappy but kinda happy to be there. Yeah. And then obviously they leave again. The idea of like, oh my god, I have to go back to them again, really? Like I'm not from here, like
0: I think it was because he had done the favor for the Time Lords in terms of Genesis that it almost felt like he felt like that his exile should now be definitively ended so he should be able to go back and wander time and space as as he was up until uh spearhead
1: yeah and that's a really good way of looking at it actually
0: and as well like i i think they always refer to like doc tom as like the bohemian doctor like the wanderlust doctor and i that that's really definitively shown at the start of this story
1: it is what i do love as well though is that it doesn't take away from the bits of the doctor that we love you know he's still outsmarting everybody when he can though like i said with sutek it's an uphill battle the whole way he still is joking where possible at completely inappropriate times but that's just who doc tom is and he still really cares for sarah and he cares in his own way for Scarman and the others. Um, it's one of the things where I think while everyone loves Egyptian stuff, I think any episode you have of any show that is based around Egyptian stuff, people are gonna love it. Yeah, Stargate SG One, the entire show, as an example, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I think one of the reasons why people like this episode so much is Doc Tom in this episode is the quintessential Tom Baker Doctor. And it's quintessential Tom Baker Doctor. As defined by Philip Hinchcliffe, yeah, who came on a showrunner for Robot, but those stories were written by the previous group. This is really Hinchcliffe, putting his stamp on things. This is the first season that he ran from the beginning by himself, and this was his Doctor, which I think really shines well.
0: And as well, just as a, kind of like uh, reflect a small bit of trivia on that, that when they did Doctor Who at forty back when, just before it came back with uh, Chris, this was the story that they showed on UK TV Goal to represent Doc Tom, and just before the 50th as well, with The Doctors Revisited. This was the one that Moffat chose for the showcase for The Fourth Doctor as well.
1: Yeah, a lot of people see this as his strongest story, which I think is a really good way of showcasing. If you're someone who's new to the show, you've never seen the classic stories, you're not really sure, this gives so much of, what we love in later iterations of the doctor it really all comes back to this in a big way genesis as well which is covered separately but i think this is a really strong episode if you're not sure you'll like it just give a you know small skip of the wobbly hand (laughs) <laughs> Not the
0: chair. Uh, I'd actually argue against it. I'd say keep the wobbly hand <laughs> because if you if you can get on board with that, you can get on board with. Uh, do you remember the green condom monsters from John Pertwee's era? <laughs> so that, that type of stuff. So I suppose maybe the going down the chain. Now we've lauded uh, and sang praises for Doc Tom in this one. So now it's, maybe it's time to talk about Sarah and the episodic or story-based companions
1: yeah so we'll go with sarah first since she is the sort of lead companion as Twer. Um and this is her by herself there's no harry um it's just sarah and the doctor i think this is a story where sarah really shines as a character we get to see her playful side at the beginning like when he's being on morose and she's there like with the i don't know if it's a shawl or whatever like wrapping it around her head um a pose which comes back to her in a later story um, which i quite like but throughout the episode she plays against the doctor's flickering mood very well this isn't someone who's startled by him it's okay why are you being so morose today okay fine whatever do you know what i mean like you know stopping your grump <laughs> move on as opposed to her getting the only time she gets angry with him is when she's understandably emotional because someone has died beyond that she's just like i'll oh, leave him to his own devices no one understands him but himself it's fine don't worry about it Which I think really shows how much she has come to learn and trust this version of the Doctor. I mean, he's her second version. And it really shows their relationship building. Yeah, And yeah, she has moments where she screams a lot. But one of the things about Sarah, and I am going to put my hand up. I will defend Sarah to the bitter end. I always will.
0: (laughs) In in terms of the screaming, I think it's, in scenarios like this, it's kind of justifiable. Like, at the end of episode two, she is about to be strangled. So she is scared like like anyone would be scared i'm pretty sure if you put harry into that scenario he'd be the exact same way calling out for help
1: oh definitely and the thing is it balances out quite well like while she has moments of peril and she screams for the doctor she also has moments of her being her own individual person and her being a badass like if you think about when the mummy is hunting them and she's you you described it as like Ibrahim Na- Namin is hunting the doctor and Sarah's trying to avoid the mummy she doesn't scream out when she sees it she doesn't run away she hides from it obviously but she's calm she's collected she knows where she wants to go it's not a panic do you know it's one of the things that Liz always wanted was that Sarah screams because things are scary
0: yeah and I mean like like the, like the doctor uh, screams out in anguish this is like again is a form of anguish like we've had uh, male companions and we've had other female companions that are almost as strong as Sarah the only reason I say almost is because that scene where Sarah just takes the hunting rifle and in an almost Sarah Connor esque fashion seems to know exactly what to do and not care a jot like uh, about you know the fact that it's a heavy gun or anything like that.
1: That's the one thing that in the long run makes it's a kind of a questionable thing about Sarah as a character. If you look beyond Doctor Who, if you look into the Sarah Jane adventures and so on, Sarah hates guns. Mm. So it's a little confusing when you go back and you see her so sure and confident of herself with a rifle. And apparently Liz thought that Sarah should be a little bit clumsy with it. You know what I mean? That, you know, where would she learn how to use a rifle? Paddy Russell, the director, said no. Sarah was fully capable and able to hit the target dead on. So my personal headcanon is that the unit guys taught her how to use it so that she could defend herself.
0: I I think that's a lot of people's headcanon. But um, actually, just to kind of drop, uh, I suppose, a parallel from a different franchise, uh, Obi-Wan. You know, t- he talks about lightsabers in A New Hope. That you know, it's a more was it a weapon for a more civilized time. And then you yeah. just you see him dead shot General Grievous in The Revenge of the Sith with the blaster, and just goes, you know, what a senseless device. <laughs> just that, just because you d- don't like something doesn't mean you can't be proficient in it as a measure of not having to be having to use a kind of thing
1: yeah what i do find funny and i left this out of the trivia because i wanted to mention it here in the context of this conversation was when they filmed that bit liz Sladen is not exactly proficient with a weapon no one gave her earplugs oh and she was in a very combined area so there was like a wall quite close and she was right next to that gate and she shot the rifle and she couldn't hear it for about 20 minutes and people were talking to her. She had gone completely deaf. No one bothered to give her earplugs.
0: For the people listening at home, that's right. Television and Hollywood lie.
1: <laughs> yes, they do. Oh, is there anything else for you um, that stood out for Sarah in this episode?
0: Um, not really, because I think that as the like as this her tenure with Doc Tom kind of went on. So like Zygons was the last time that it was a three person. Tardis crew, and then you had Planet yeah. of Evil just before this one, and I think this is the one where like Sarah really definitively kind of shows just how capable she is because in like all of uh, season twelve you had Harry there as a potential backup, whereas in this current season. She's if she's by herself, she is by herself, so she has to fend for herself, and she shows just how capable capable she is. Now I know you could say the same thing of her first season where she was with John Pertwee, but again, it's different because we're getting to know the character, we're getting to she's getting exposed to this world of being able to travel in time and space in such a fantastic way that she's still kind of finding her feet, and this is the one where she gets to truly spread her wings and fly solo. And I think this is why she is one of the most, sorry, the most loved companion across all of Doctor Who.
1: Yeah, I agree. And we're going to talk about Sarah a lot in upcoming episodes, and my bias will shine through every single time. But we did have another pseudo-companion in this episode, and in listening to the audio commentary for this, the actor makes a valid point that Lawrence does travel in the TARDIS. He goes to the future and he comes back. So he did travel in the TARDIS. So what do you think of Lawrence Scarman?
0: So I can't get... So ever since I realized who it was, I can't get the comparisons to Admiral Ozzel out of my head. It's It just seems that Lawrence is, is at times just as inept as Admiral Ozzel is. Um, Aw, poor Lawrence. It's It just seems kind of strange that um, he is... Because he's clearly a man of science, with the fact that he built the Marconi machine, and he was receiving, like he was built to the extent that it could actually receive a signal from Mars, and he doesn't really seem to take too much of a step back when he goes into the TARDIS, because he's, as you said, he's read H.G. Wells, and he can accept, he can almost take that like readily, but when he's told, but then again, I suppose it's the familial thing, but when he's told by the Doctor definitively that his brother is dead and you can even see from like the the corpse makeup that's put on Marcus that yeah there's something not quite right here i don't know i i, I suppose it's true to the character that he would still try and reach out to his brother's better uh, better side or his good side despite the fact that he as a man of science he should know that he is technically just an automaton at this point
1: yeah and i think you know him being a man of science is really interesting and i always love when we see human innovation being used it was his machine that was originally going to be the the thing that helped stop Sutex escape what I love about Skarman though and again this came up in the audio commentary for this episode is he is a little boy throughout the entire story He's keen and eager to show his invention to someone who understands it. And you kind of get the feeling like he lives in the lodge and his brother lives in the big house. Yeah. So you kind of get the sense that he's maybe the eccentric one of the two, do you know? And he's kind of a bit off to the side that he's always inventing things, but he's just so eager to show them. And When when the doctor shows that he knows what it is, he gets so excited that someone actually appreciates it. He's a little bit rash in his decisions. Mm Mm-hmm. Like you said, which does result in the destruction of the equipment and the doctor needing to find another solution, and that leads him to being quite upset and disappointed when the doctor leaves him out later on because he no longer trusts him. And when you see him sat in that chair, and the doctor and Sarah are leaving, and he's like, "You don't trust me, do you?" And he just looks like this lost little boy, and you just want to give him a hug.
0: And as well, I suppose, like with the time frame that it is, like it's nineteen eleven, like, I guess was this is a time when, like, forward-thinking scientists are probably more ridiculed than the ones that are uh, like like as you said his brother because his brother is an archaeologist and is looking to the past and like archaeologists are the ones that have helped us get a better understanding of like some of the amazing inventions of the past whereas like this is a guy now that's trying to invent for the future and maybe there is that small bit of ridicule
1: yeah i mean the fact that he's pointing something at mars like why would you why would he do that like do you know, in that time frame, the thing is though that like as well, like when he goes into the TARDIS, his reaction is the exact same as any child who was given the opportunity to go in the TARDIS. It's absolute amazement and joy when confronted with the impossible nature of it. Yeah. Um, and that was very much intentional on the actor's part. Remember, he's been in numerous Doctor Who episodes up until this point, but he really wanted Lawrence to be the giddy, excited little child because he represents the kids in the audience and that was the way he saw it. The one thing that I didn't like is uh, his death was actually really upsetting to watch. Yeah. And I just wanted to give him a cuddle because he just wanted his brother back.
0: Yeah, that's actually... I didn't really think about that because I suppose I was... There are... There are... Ter- there, are epi- there, there are Sorry. There are story-based companions that can be very hit, or, hit and miss and dependent on what way you want to get invested in Lawrence like if you want to get invested in him as the actual character then yeah he is kind of the tragic figure uh whereas i suppose if you just take a look at the fact that oh he's an episodic companion he may not make it so there's not a whole uh, lot to invest in it but no i think he's definitely one of the better story based companions that we've come across i would i'd say
1: yeah and i would just close that off by saying what I like about Lawrence, I think, is he could very easily have been a full-time companion.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You could imagine him in the TARDIS, traveling with the crew. You know, you could imagine him there. Maybe not with Doc Tom and Sarah, um, because their relationship works better with a some rather than a threesome, which we, was the reason why Harry left. But um, you could imagine him going on an adventure like that. Yeah. And I think that's why I relate to him so much.
0: Maybe uh, uh, John's doctor, because, you know, the Fantastic Gadgets and the almost Jameis Bond-esque types thing. So maybe, like, Lawrence would definitely thrive in that sort of a uh, environment.
1: Yeah, or even if you... Ima- I sort of have this image of him with Patrick Troughton and Jamie, do you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I obviously, you know, they had the other intelligent person at the time, but like, you know, sort of if you imagine... Troughton somewhere in the middle and you've got Jamie to one side and you've got Lawrence to the other um I, I think it would work quite well as well
0: like a weird historical angel and devil type thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> or a uh, Doctor Who's version of Worf and Data because you know sorry that's the that's the thing I will state that now is that it's not the Worf effect it's the Jamie McCrimmon effect
1: <laughs> that is right true. Jamie got there first
0: and I suppose actually that's a nice segue into the people that cause or is based on the scale of the wharf and Jamie McCrimmon affect the villains so um so we start off with uh tier one villain Ibrahim
1: yeah so Ibrahim Naheem I don't have a lot on him to be honest because he was in one episode I put um,
0: I put down walking cliche
1: <laughs> he is a bit of a walking cliche and he's a bit of a stereotype but I don't know if it would fly if it was tried to be created today I, d- I don't know if people would I don't know if people would risk it because he comes across as such a stereotype. I don't think there's anything overly negative in the stereotype. Sorry to cut across. I think it just maybe depends on if you have
0: like a counterbalance. Like if you say, for example, you know, you had the the mummy back in the, the late 90s and you did have an almost Ibrahim-like figure, but he turned out that he was on the side of good. So you can still portray him as a bit of a cliche, but it, so long as the twist is good, I think people will understand that.
1: Yeah, and the one thing that I found interesting, I thought it when I first watched it, and again, I went through the novelization as well, is Ibrahim was a true believer in the Osirons. In the show, it kind of comes across that he's a true believer in Sutek specifically, but in the novelization, it's established that he's part of a religious sect that has worshipped the Osirons for, like, thousands of years. They were put in place by Horus when Sutek was first captured. And you get that from the beginning. He's not possessed like Marcus
0: is. Oh, no, definitely. Um, Even with the fact that he seems to use the ring device, which is clearly an electronic device, that does kind of speak to the true believer. Yeah, our entire culture and mythology is based on the fact that aliens um, inspired us.
1: Yeah. I do wonder, though, if... And this is partially tinged by the novelization, which I know isn't really the point of this discussion. But um, in the novelization he's a priest of the Osirons. And I wonder if, while he's a true believer in the Osirons, if Sutek didn't use that for his own machinations. Do you know? When one of your gods tells you to do something, you may not understand that he wasn't the good one.
0: Well, see, that's the thing, because I'm not... I'm not quite sure about that, because the Doctor makes the comparison that Set seems to be based off Sutek. And in most Egyptian mythologies, Set is always, like, the devil, for lack of a better thing. So I would say that anyone that would lend himself towards working for Sutek would know off the bat that he's probably up to no good.
1: Okay, yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. I suppose that leads us on to our next level of villain you and I may see this differently in terms of what comes next, but I did the mummies themselves next.
0: No, I I hadn't really considered them, but I suppose the fact that they are a presence and quite an intimidating presence as well at points.
1: At points, which I think is the important part. So I always felt when I first watched was they had a very interesting design. I do wonder who decided that, obviously these men going around in mummy outfits, that unless they strangled you with their hands, which looks a bit silly, and the fight between them and... Those Who Serve Horus was a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Um, But it's Death by Lara Croft Boob Hug.
0: I kind of viewed it... Ha-
1: what's with the Lara Croft boobs?
0: Um, I kind of viewed it more as like a crushing type thing as opposed to Death by Snoo Snoo. But uh, um, like <laughs> if, you, if you want to put really... It's like more, uh, you want to put a, a less humorous spin on it. It's almost like an internal decapitation. But yeah, uh, I suppose the fact that it's really weird classic kitschy doctor who yeah it's lara croft boobs
1: yeah it's just, it the thing and the thing is they do have scary moments as well because even though they look a bit silly and like two of them hugging with someone's neck trapped in between them looks a bit interesting they do have that it's a very classic who villain trope um it's also a very sort of classic horror trope which is, what Philip Hinchcliffe is a huge fan of um which is the fact that it doesn't matter how fast you run. Yeah. They are going very slowly, but they are always right behind you. Which is obviously because which is obviously because the actors can't see. And so they have to walk very slowly. But they do have that, which is good. And again, if you imagine back in the 70s when that wasn't so much of a trope.
0: Yeah, because this is around the time of like Hammer Horror. Like when yeah. Christopher Lee's Dracula and the
1: countless versions of The Mummy and
0: other horror movies... That the uh, the shuffle, the the shuffling yeah. horror, yeah,
1: yeah, all of which inspired Hinchcliffe in general, yeah. Do, do you know, so I think I think they work quite well. You just have to get over the death by Lara Croft boob hug, and then you're then you're good to go. Or maybe you don't, and maybe that was just me.
0: <laughs> uh, I suppose the fact that it, it but it's also kind of. Um, Kind of reminds you sometimes of, like, you know, when the walls in, like, a haunted house are kind of closing in. And it's just, like, that terror side of thing of going, oh, God, I've got to be crushed to death.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the guy who played the poacher played it quite well. That it was quite believable. I think if he had played that any other way, it may not have struck true. No. But he did play it quite well. It's just because I've watched it so many times that I sort of see the humour in it. But the mummies are kind of a passive villain in all of this. They don't have their own choices or whatever. But the main passive villain, sadly, is Marcus.
0: And I think um, it might sound like a a disservice to Bernard Archer's uh, physical makeup. But I think that his features, when you apply the corpse makeup... Because he's quite an intimidating presence to look at him anyway. But when you add the corpse makeup, it just is tenfold. And he is really, really unsettling.
1: Yeah, he does have a very... um, Christopher Lee vibe of him as well. Do you know? He belongs in Hammer Horror.
0: Yes. Uh, absolutely. And even even when he's not in Hammer Horror, because like, I remember him from like the Dead's Army movie uh, way back. And God, this guy is just... he He's just intimidating.
1: Do you know what he almost reminds me of? Now that I think about it. Tywin Lannister. Yes. I could see him. If they had done Game of Thrones back in the 70s, I could see him as Tywin Lannister.
0: Yeah. No, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think it's a... Uh... A really good comparison.
1: Um What I like the most about him, though, is he is a prime example of a Philip Hinchcliffe villain, which is he always found the idea of a human who is possessed to be way scarier than any monster, probably because it's easier to pull it off. And Hinchcliffe was very aware of the limitations of the Doctor Who budget, which was the same as Coronation Street. Yes. <laughs> so he always played into the possessed human role we saw it with harry in terror of the zygons which still haunts me to this day but scarman as a character is a prime example of what scares us the most yeah it's not the mummy it's not even sutek it's the idea that we can be taken over and forced to do these things
0: and even when he first appears from the tunnel like you know he's in that kind of dark armor And then it fades away, and it reveals him. And it it, it's not done. it, It the reveal isn't done to try and let you or give the belief as such that you know, oh, he looks normal, and therefore we should trust him. If we don't, if we if if we didn't see him appear from the tunnel and have this transition, and he wasn't in the corpse makeup, it's it's not that impression isn't given that oh, he could potentially be trustworthy. It's deliberately pushed into the thing of this person is not who he once was. That is, and again it's all down to, I think, the acting of Bernard Archer as well, that he really gets the whole thing across that. of the, I know that I could potentially outrun the mummy, but whereas this guy, he clearly is channeling Sutek's power and I do not want to cross him.
1: And that leads us to our main villain of the story, which is Sutek.
0: Yes, so I quite like Thanos in this. Sorry, I mean Sutek. Um, <laughs> but th- th- that's that is that is the comparison I draw. The fact that it took seven hundred and yeah, seven hundred and forty of these superior intellectual beings that the doctor even says the Time Lords probably can't compete with. It takes seven hundred and forty of them to just imprison one of to imprison Sutek. And like if that's not Thanos level villain, then I don't know what is.
1: Yeah, I think the fact that he has so much power while still in prison. He cannot leave that chair. There is a containment field, he cannot leave the chair. And yet he manages to do so much with so very little. Now, I do wonder why they gave him a TV. (laughs) But, you know, the fact that he has so much mental power and any villain that can mentally overwhelm the doctor is always going to put you on edge. Mm.
0: And, like, that's the thing is that never once from kind of what I... What I took away from is that never once does the doctor feel like he's got the upper hand in this situation. Every, every everything is, I have a plan. Damn it, that plan didn't work. Back to the drawing board. It's nothing can be nothing can be salvaged from the initial failed plan. Everything has to be something new, and that again, it's like with the with the Daleks, the doctor usually has like four or five avenues which he can go at the Daleks from. Or with um, like the Cybermen are the exact same, whereas this it was a case of he has to be stopped, or else bad things will happen. And even then, I don't know if I can stop him.
1: Yeah, and again, you know, Sutek shows himself as a character who's you know willing to use other people. Do you know, this is at least the second episode. I'd maybe have to go back and double check where. Someone threatens Sarah and Doc Tom caves.
0: I'd say Davros probably did it.
1: Davros did I know Davros did it. There's this episode. I know it happens in Seeds of Doom as well, which comes after this. I don't think it happens in any of the other Doc Tom stories. Not really. Not not in anything more than a passive way. But the fact that Sutek sort of realises, oh, she travels with you. I can hurt her and that will hurt you.
0: There is one thing that I it kind of I wonder about is that when the when he pushes the doctor under his control, it clearly is the doctor is actually fully under his control. So I'm kind of wondering, like, why didn't he just have Scarman off Sarah then and there? Maybe, but then maybe it was the fact that he felt with the time for his freedom elapsing and he was using so much mental power and all these different avenues better play it safe than sorry
1: yeah I think if he had offed Sarah he would have lost control of the doctor do you know bearing in mind that the doctor just appearing in the chamber caused him to lose the control he had over the explosion yeah so I think if he had killed if he had killed Sarah outright I think he knew that there was a chance that the doctor could sort of summon this internal his internal strength and defeat him. So don't risk it. Wait and then kill them both off later.
0: No. And he and he, that's the thing is like, again, if it wasn't for those two minutes he would have won as well once they finally did reach on Mars. Oh yeah. So I think Sutek will probably go down as one of the most definitive villains for Doctor Who because he was uh, li- he, he was literally less than a YouTube song. Well, Uh, away from victory (laughs) yeah he was he was he was less than a youtube ad away from victory
1: (laughs) yeah exactly
0: uh clearly Doc tom just pressed the skip button
1: great so that was a look at the doctor the companions and the villains of parents of mars now it's time to take a look back and see what do we think of the story as a whole. So Paddy, I'm going to put it to you. What was your overall impression of Pyramids of Mars?
0: So I might be slightly biased in my review of it because this story covers a lot of my own personal likes in terms of science fiction and in terms of just general media. So for me, this is a five out of five because it actually marries uh, horror, uh, Egyptian mythology, uh, A seriously all-powerful villain that the hero struggles against. And great character interaction between the Doctor and Sarah. Some really memorable visual moments and some decent characters as well. Uh, So yeah, for me, it's a perfect
1: scoring. For me, I think this is an awesome story. It's certainly in my top stories of all time. It's not the top for me. There's another one that holds that position. But it is certainly up there with the top stories of all time. I think it holds up very well today. I think it acts as a very good entry point for new viewers. I mean there's a reason why this story is repeatedly ranked as the best of the Tom Baker era or, you know, a fan favorite from classic Who. You mentioned earlier, you know, when UKTV Gold was doing the was it the 40th anniversary or whatever, this was the story that was picked. Yeah for Doc Tom and it was picked for a very specific reason it is very very good I'm hesitant to give anything a perfect score just because I think there's always room for improvement I think the only reason why I'm docking any bit of points from this story is purely from a production standpoint I think there are things they could have done with the production that would have been a bit smoother had they taken maybe a bit more time, which with Classic Who was always a problem. Like they only had four days filming on location and about, you know, the same amount of time in the studio. While the mummies were interesting, I think they could have been a little bit more fleshed out and their fighting sort of drew me out. Do you know? Just random, very slow movement of arms isn't the most <laughs> intimidating thing in the world and of course there is the tiny flub of the of the, the the guy's hand on the chair which is tiny but if I, if i'm being honest i wouldn't give it a perfect 5 out of 5 i am going to give it a very healthy 4.7 though which may seem to be nitpicking but like i said i'm hesitant to give anything a perfect score because i think there's always room for improvement in everything
0: i suppose like just to kind of counteract that uh, the reason that i've kind of given it the perfect as well is that i kind of i kind of quite uh, enjoyed the the tacky i won't say tacky but like the really stiff movements of the mummies and you know it's pretty much almost like rock'em Sock'em robots when they take on the Horus guardians but uh i suppose like when you go back to the hammer horror stuff a lot of it is the more creepy strangulation things as opposed to big huge fighting and i just i kind of like like that tacky silly 70s and 80s hammer horror style
1: yeah, and, and that's why we have this conversation, Joe, you and I aren't going to agree all the time. Yeah. I think one of the reasons as well, and this may be a slight bias on my part, and maybe as we do more episode reviews, I might change this, is the way I watch these episodes. So, I watch each episode two or three times. Once the whole way through, just as... know watching the episode and maybe i should give my score after that point that that might be better going forward but the second time i watch it through i watch it with the audio commentary turned on so i hear the people who were in it (laughs) criticize it and the things they wish they could have done better and the things they had planned to do better so knowing what they could have done but didn't because of timing or budget restrictions or whatever That's kind of where the points get docked a little bit. And maybe I shouldn't do that. And maybe going forward, I'll change that. But that's sort of where that comes from, is... It's not the fact that I think it should be better. It's that I know it could have been. uh, Like,
0: that's fair for anything, like, because, you know... Okay, as a kind of, uh, I suppose, a parallel to that is, like, you know, I'm a big wrestling fan. When I see, like, a match that I really, really enjoy, and then years later, I see the two people in it talk about the setup and the decision-making. And it it does kind of lose a small bit of that in-the-moment feel. And I suppose it's only natural that the more you take on, the more you'll change your assessment of it than what your initial in-the-moment one of it was. But... um, Yeah, no, going forward, like, if you want, you can always, like, you can change your style or whatever the case may be.
1: Yeah. And the thing is, with episodes that I have watched a number of times over, Pyramids of Mars being one of them, you know, in all honesty, all of Elizabeth Slayton's episodes being among them. Yeah. (laughs) I have watched it many times with the audio commentary on, so (laughs) I know these things already. But it might be interesting, you know, in episodes that I maybe haven't seen or that I don't own, so I haven't seen with the commentary, if I'm as critical as I am with the ones that I have, you know thinking back you know to robot, yeah, you know robot is a- another amazing story stands up amazingly well and brilliant for doctor outing, but then you have that scene with the tank <laughs> and toy Liz, and while it's funny and a little bit campy to watch it back, I know they hate them. I know the people who made them hate those scenes and wish they had done it better. And so in the back of my mind, I can't help but say, look, do you know what? They didn't like it either. Yeah. Knock a few points off. But, you know, that, that's why we have this discussion though. The whole point of two people having this conversation is that it's not just my opinion, it's not just yours. Well, you and I agree on many things. Yes. A great many things when it comes to Doctor Who. We don't agree on everything. And I think that's, I think that's vitally important in this review situation. You know, one of the reasons we decided to do this podcast in the first place is because we wanted people to like Classic Who in the same way we did. We wanted them to give it the same chance that we gave it. Back well, when I was in college, I don't know if you'd watched it before then.
0: Yeah, no, like I, I, I was kind of the same. Like, uh, obviously, having UK TV goals at home, I caught the odd bits and pieces but I didn't start properly getting into who until college
1: yeah and i think you know when we were in college we had the same experience of people pushing back on us saying that you know classic who was garbage and it was really tacky and really badly done and knew who was the only real doctor who and all this nonsense and so we wanted to do this podcast to sort of show that no the, the, the classic episodes are great but we need to be honest as well, and if you and I spent every episode agreeing on everything and saying that every episode was brilliant, yeah, I don't think anyone would believe us.
0: And as well, like there's going to be episodes where we're going to come up on stuff, like episodes and stories that we don't like, And but at the same time, there's still going to be stuff in it that you might like or I might like, and even in an episode that we will probably get a negative review from us, we'll still probably change our minds on the positives.
1: Yeah. But yeah, I think uh, between 4.7 and a 5 out of 5 is still exceptionally good. Like 'cause I think we both agree that Pyramids is an amazing yes. episode.
0: I think it's a great example for if someone wants to get a feel for what Classic Who was like. I think it's a really good example that you can actually give them without having... that. It's a story that doesn't involve Daleks or Cybermen or any of the major recurring villains or recurring themes. And it introduces a a good one-off villain. And yeah, like it just has a really good character moments from Tom Baker and from Elizabeth Sladen. And a really good supporting cast as well.
1: Yeah. And I just thought of something there. One of the things I really liked about it. And it has good parallels for New Who in this. Which is New Who often gets a bit of flack for messing with the timeline. Yeah. And oh, you know, humans didn't abandon Earth until this point in time. What are you talking about? Orphan 55. Yeah. And whatever. But a lot of that sort of, how can they have this when in this classic episode, they said that the Doctor had already done X, Y, and Z. It is covered in this episode. It's done quite nicely as well. Because the whole thing about Doctor Who, and particularly the time travel episodes within Earth's timeline. Is well, we know that Sutek didn't win because he didn't win uh-huh. duh <laughs> like we know the future, um you know, as Sarah says it, like you know she's from nineteen eighty and Sutek didn't win, so you know, yeah, but they show it quite well, which is that by jumping forward to nineteen eighty and showing the desol- the desolation. Of 1980, when Sutec still wasn't destroyed in their adventure in the past. Yeah, it was like the reason. It, it's sort of this sort of predestiny thing, but also this whole f- timelines being very intricate.
0: Yes. And
1: wibbly wobbly, which I think works really well. And for someone trying to get an understanding on how who deals with time travel. I think that is a very good representation of it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And like the thing about changing timelines or not sticking around to ensure that a certain thing happens, uh, I, I think it's always been there, even from like the Hartnell days. But this is a really good, again, as you say, a really good example of it being shown that, oh, yeah, just because you're from a time where something didn't come to rise doesn't mean that it can't come to rise.
1: Yeah, which I think is very, very good. Yeah. So with that, those are my final thoughts. Paddy, any additional thoughts to add before we wrap this up?
0: Not really. Again, I think this is a great example of just a really engaging story. Really good characters, really good villain. And I think that this is, if if you want to take it out of Doctor Who component, I think this is just a really good example of the trope of, horror meets science science fiction Egyptian mythology. Like so you have that with like say Stargate or maybe some other ones down the line, but this is a great example of that.
1: Yeah. So that is it for Pyramids of Mars. Thank you all for listening. If you'd like to hear more about upcoming episodes or join in on the conversation, be sure to check us out at Time Teamp. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook and Twitter. Or you can email us at time traveling at teamproductions.com
0: Bye! Well, you have made it through the other side of the very first time traveling team recording. Congratulations. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have no more cookies or milk to give as rewards. <laughs> you have our undying, undying appreciation.
1: Yes. Next week, we're back to our normally scheduled format mm-hmm. with the Android Invasion. I almost forgot the name of the episode
0: uh so yeah i will be back to our normal markings out of five to see exactly if this current season can keep on the hot streak it is on at the moment
1: indeed we will until then guys have a good time bye